don't be fooled by the digital dawn chorus that you're hearing. I'm out here as a BTO trainee bird ringer. Uh, that's British Trust for Ornithology. And we are here at Martin Rahn's ringing station. And what you're hearing is his scrub warbler mix blasting out as we try and entice some migratory birds into the mist nets that we've set up before first light to see if we can tune into the stories of birds on migration. Yes, because this episode's dawn recording is focusing on bird ringing and migration. And loyal listeners will remember that Sam Lee, the Nightingale's man, mentioned in the last episode that it was only relatively recently we began to understand bird migration. And he talked about people thinking that birds went into the mud and up to the moon over the winter. Yeah, well, the mud story came from swallows, which are now on the move. And to roost and rest on their journey, they drop down into reed beds at dusk. And then just at first light the following morning, after they've had a, a good night's sleep, they'll, they'll set off from the reed beds and head off. But people saw them heading into the reeds and then didn't see them after that and assumed that they just spent their winters buried in the mud at the bottom of a reed bed. And it's only now, thanks to things like ringing efforts, that we know they spend our winters in South Africa. And then Sam also mentioned that in Germany, a stalk was found with a spear right the way through its neck. And that spear was discovered to come from Africa and it had flown all the way hmm. and survived. And then they linked that that's where it came from. Yeah, so over time there's been lots of different pieces of the puzzle of migration being put together. But certainly nowadays, one of the things that is relied on is bird ringing and also on bigger birds where you can fit GPS trackers and geolocators, you can then start to accurately map their movements and understand a bit more about these mega journeys that these birds are making. So you are training to be a bird ringer. I am. Had I known when I first set out, I might have thought twice. It's incredibly intense. At all times, the priority is to make sure that the welfare of the bird is kept as a number one priority. And how many birds do you have to handle before you are officially a bird ringer? The textbooks say you need to get at least 750 birds extracted from the nets of 40 different species, and I'm nearly there now. So 750 birds of 40 different species? Yeah. So hours and hours and hours? Of... Yeah, yeah, hundreds of hours of, of training to make sure that you are doing it to a very high standard. So we've got a mist net strung up through some sort of head height scrub. In this case, we're on the Ashdown Forest uh, edge of, so it's gorse and bracken and small silver birch trees. And it was interesting to notice as we walked in this morning that you couldn't see the mist net. It's a very fine mesh black net, which when it's up against some vegetation, completely disappears. And that's what the birds also don't see as they fly into it. And it is particularly misty today. Uh, it's mist netting in the mist today, that's for sure. So how quick is the whole process for the bird, taking it out of the net, measuring it and releasing it? So typically the bird will be in the net no longer than 20 minutes. As, as the nets are checked, the birds get extracted very carefully and put into a, a cotton cloth bag where it's dark and it's safe. 
and they don't flap about and they stay calm in there and then they get taken back to the ringing station where there's a whole set of paraphernalia that's used to weigh, measure and put rings on the birds and then as soon as that's been done and all that data has been collected then the birds are released. With a ring on them. With a ring on them, yeah, (laughs) a ring that weighs less than a tenth of the gram in many cases on small birds so it is no different from you or I wearing a a ring on, on our fingers in terms of any burden that it might put on them. I don't love the sound of being in a dark bag, but you insist that it's not that stressful for them and minimum harm is caused. When they are in the bag, it's dark and there's no hard edges to bang themselves against, so they're safe and they're generally very calm in the bags. So Tom and I have come up to Martin and Izzy, who are the other bird ringers here, And Martin has this very aesthetic table of implements. Martin, can you can you talk me through? Well, first of all, maybe tell us how you got into bird ring and introduce yourself. Sure. My name is Martin. I'm a ringer here in Sussex, along with Izzy here, and we have a little similar story in that we both got involved with the Sussex Barn Owl group and kind of snowballed from there and got roped into ringing all birds really. As you rightly said, we have a collection of implements and just talk you through some of them. We've got little weighing pots and a small scale to weigh the birds. We've got wing rules measuring the wing length. And of course, we've got our many different sizes of rings. We've got multiple reference guides made by people much cleverer than us that uh, (laughs) allow us to help us age and sex the birds. And those rings, do they have your personal identification on them? So these these rings are registered to my trainer and then I'm under my permit allowed to use these rings myself out in the field. So Izzy is here as well and you're another bird ringer in training originally from Poland. Yes I am (laughs) and you caught a nightjar in a mist net earlier this year. Yes yes it was it was very exciting so it was a couple of months ago this is a new initiative, so we weren't sure how successful it will be. But on the second attempt, actually, here in National Forest, uh, we were lucky enough to catch an adult male. So it may be that you find that nightjar again next year? That would be really good. So if we can recapture the same nightjar, this will give us information that they are site faithful, so they come back to Ashland Forest and this is this is what they select for their breeding territories. What was that like holding a nightjar I in your hands? absolutely exhilarating because I've, I've dreamt about this uh, for a very, very long time. I'm really passionate about them. So you got 91 was my one, wasn't it? Yeah, to get that yours. one. Yeah. Okay. Chiff chaff. Yeah. Yes. I've got chiff chaff as well. Yeah, 60 was my last one. Because look how, like, a difference. Look at how pretty this one is. Yeah, this one is, this looks still... really daggy. I reckon that's a four. We're just walking down to a mist net because we've heard that a bird has been caught. Or several. Six oh, birds. Six birds. Yep. Mostly the same species at a glance? Yeah, these are chiffchaffs or willow warblers. And the one I'm getting out at first glance looks chiffchaff-like. Chiffchaff. Chiffchaff. Yeah. That was through counting? Counting the imagination on the primary flight feathers. <laughs> and if it's imaginated on P6, it's a chiffchaff and not a willow warbler. Wow. 
very impressive. But so that's the kind of detail that you have to look at because they can look so superficially very similar. So Martin and Tom have just caught six birds. Yep. yep. Martin's got five blue cloth bags around his neck, each with a different bird in it. We try to do the small ones first. The larger birds are slightly more robust and can wait a little longer, but so we get the small ones done first. Minimising the amount of time they're spending in the bags and get them away as soon as we can. Great. I won't ask you any more questions so that we can get them out as soon as possible. So we're back at the bird table. Martin, are you happy to describe one of the bird yep, ringing? Absolutely. So just bear with me while I uh, extract it from the bag. So we like to get it in the ringer's grip before it comes out. Ah, so this is the oh. black cap. Oh. And you're holding it in a very specific way, gently under its neck. Yeah, so I've got its head between my uh, two fingers here. The bird is nice and safe in my hand. It's not going to flap and uh, I can access its legs to put the ring on with ease. Pop the ring in the ringing pliers. Another oh, bird's leg nice so and gently. Delicate. Its leg is so delicate. Slide it in and then close the ring. We spin the ring and then close again to make sure it's completely closed. Martin's now blowing on it. So I blow on the uh, chest of the bird to uh, see if there's any fat and then I'm feeling for its muscle, how much muscle it's got. And its sternum feels quite sharp, so that's a muscle score of one. And there was no fat. Because where all. do they fly to in the winter? Uh, these guys will be off to Africa. So he needs to get a lot fatter before he can go to Africa? Yeah, they should this time of year be fattening up on all the blackberries. So and how did you know he was a male? Because uh, he's got his nice black cap coming through and oh. the females are all brown on the cap. Uh -huh. So then uh, and that's it. And now we release the bird nice and gently. Off he flies. And off he goes. My goodness. Hopefully not into the net again. After arriving at 5am to set the nets up, it took us about an hour, it's now 10.30. The ringing station and the nets are all taken down and we had 24 birds caught and released, of which there were six different species. And We had a frustrating flyover just now of 30 meadow pipits, none of which made it into the nets, but we'll have to come back another day to get them. And do you feel it's quite a privilege to hold this fragile being in your hands? Yeah, for me, it's totally life-affirming. You know, we have days where we wake up and we're feeling a bit weak and feeble and a bit rubbish. And then you realise when you're holding a seven-gram tiny little warbler in your hand and the vigour and the kind of urge to survive that it shows as it flies off and carries on its journey south. And you kind of go, what have we got to complain about? You know, come on, sort yourself out. This is survival. This is what these birds do and they just get on with it. So, 
we've discussed the impact of dogs on wildlife on this podcast, and now it's time for cats. And currently, while there are roughly 12 million dogs across UK households, there are 11 million cats. And there's two reasons why cats are relevant to the Ashdown Forest. One is that no development is permitted within 400 metres of the Ashdown Forest because of the potential predation of pet cats on wildlife. And the second is actually the headquarters of Cats Protection, which is the largest cats charity in the UK, is actually based on the forest. So I'm here for the first time in the Ashdown Forest podcast's brief history, indoors, because it is absolutely pelting outside and we tried to do this interview outdoors, but it was really not possible. So I'm indoors now with Nikki Trevorrow, who is a cat behaviour specialist in the feline welfare department at Cats Protection. Thank you, Nikki, for coming on. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. So I've read that Leonardo da Vinci described cats as masterpieces of nature. Is there a way of celebrating these cats that obviously provide love and comfort to people and minimise their impact on wildlife? Indeed there is, which is the good news. One of the biggest things I'd say that people need to do, which I think sometimes gets overlooked, is making sure that all the cats are neutered. And not only that, it's doing it at the right time. So the current stats are that 92% of cats in the UK are neutered, but we still have an overpopulation of cats, and that's because they're not getting neutered young enough. So our advice would be to get cats neutered by four months of age to prevent unwanted litters. And what do you think is the barrier to people neutering their cats? There can be lots of different barriers. One of the biggest ones is actually apathy. People just... <laughs> I, know, I know it sounds simple, but it's, you know, you don't get round to it. I do hear some cat owners say we just wanted our cat to, to experience one litter of kittens. It's really common for people to still think that. I think it's slightly anthropomorphic, though, that we're projecting our thoughts and feelings onto our cats and thinking, oh, this must be lovely for them. But really, it's lovely for us because we want those cute little kittens in our lives. However, the problem that we're seeing is year upon year, like thousands of unwanted litters of kittens. And how many cats can one unneutered cat produce in a year, let's say? So one queen can produce 18 kittens per year. So if you scale that up, that's a significant number of cats. And what's also significant, which we haven't detailed yet, is their impact on wildlife. I mean, we know it, but the figures are astonishing. I've heard 300 million prey every year across the UK. And often people just think mice, but it's mice, frogs, butterflies, dragonflies, obviously birds, apparently 27 million or so birds a year. So what do you say to your people who are adopting cats from Cats Protection? The advice that we give is to make sure they keep their cat in during dawn and dusk because that's when the prey species are most active and therefore that will help to reduce predation. And there are lots that can be done to help persuade the cat that it's better to stay in during dawn and dusk. So for example, not just at those times but throughout the rest of the day, we'd recommend interactive play sessions using a fishing rod toy. So this is a toy that's got like a nice long rod, string, and my favourite's got the feathers at the end because it's good for pretty much every cat, including the the more nervous ones. And then I'd like people to look at doing feed enrichment, which is simply feeding cats in a way that's different to a bowl, like putting them in a cardboard egg box where they can pick out the biscuits, 
it's much more mentally stimulating and it allows them to hunt for their food. And I've read that only 9 to 23% of the prey is brought home. So often if we think our cat is not having such an effect on wildlife, what's happening outside is, is much more significant. Yeah, and obviously every cat's an individual, so it will vary hugely between individual cats. What about a bell? How effective do you think the bell is around the neck? So it's one of those ones that I think a lot of people look towards getting. The studies are hugely variable in their results as to whether the bell has an impact or no impact was detected. So I would say, therefore, if it works for your individual cat to reduce predation, then great. But we would recommend that the bell goes on a quick release collar to ensure that it doesn't cause the cat injury. And I've read that it's 50% successful. So when you're talking about 27 million birds, that's half of those birds hearing the cat before it jumps. Yeah, like I said, that was one particular study. There were other studies to show it didn't help at all. So I think that's why we need to think on a case-by-case basis. So there's an estimate of a million feral cats now across the UK. Do you know what impact they're having on wildlife? It's hard to say because we don't know the population dynamics between those that are living in urban areas versus rural areas, but Cats Protection is certainly trying to help reduce the feral cat population, and that's through our efforts of what's called TNR, which is trap, humane trapping, neuter and return to site. And we neuter about 25,000 feral cats every year. My last thought is that you have a lot of leaflets here at Cats Protection, but I don't see a leaflet about how to minimise your cat's impact on wildlife. Could you make it a policy that a leaflet about minimising your cat's effect on wildlife goes home with each new adoption of a cat? So it is on our website, which is cats.org.uk. We've got plenty of information on there specifically about this topic. But it is actually found in one of our behaviour leaflets, which is indoor and outdoor cats. And that does go home with most cat owners. Well, thank you, Nikki, so much for giving all your time and thought to this. Great. No, thank you so much for having me on the podcast. So I found myself on another mossy log on Ashdown Forest, this time near King Standing. And I'm with Mary Colwell, who has so very many hats, and I will try and list them off pat now. You are the author of four books, and we'll at least be talking about two of those, one about curlews and one about predators in Britain. You are an environmental activist, a curlew campaigner. You're a former BBC Natural History Unit television and radio producer. You're also a long-distance solo walker. I mean, I could go on and on. But actually, the main reason that we have you here is to talk about your campaign, your 11-year campaign, to introduce a natural history GCSE to England. Can you tell us how that idea came to you and, and why did it take 11 years? Yeah, it's such a, a tricky question, that one, because it was just a light bulb moment. And I was actually happened to be sitting next to Tony Juniper, who's now chair of Natural England. And we were in some meeting or other. And I just turned to him and said, Tony, I think there should be a GCSE in natural history. And he went, brilliant. Of course there should. Brilliant. And he wrote some articles. And lots of people loved the idea. But I can't tell you how many times I heard, nice idea, it'll never happen. 
the schools aren't ready for it, education department doesn't want any more changes, blah, blah. Anyway, it stuttered along for quite a long time with little bursts of enthusiasm and then it will die down again because I'm not an educationalist. So I didn't know how to approach the big world of education and I'm not a politician. And those were the missing elements. I had lots of enthusiasm and lots of desire to make this happen for a better world for the next generations. And then all of a sudden, out of the blue, Caroline Lucas contacted me on Twitter. She'd seen a little government petition I'd put out. And she said, look, let me help you. And from then on, it took off. Caroline was just like this angel or magician and she had a big set of keys on a big ring and she just unlocked all these doors and i'm very chuffed that you've mentioned two people who both appeared on the ashdown forest podcast (laughs) caroline lucas was in our first episode and tony juniper in our second episode so what will be in it it absolutely has a focus on observing naming recording monitoring the wildlife around you So wherever you are in the country, whether you're in the middle of London or you're on the top of Mount Snowdon, you know, you can go out of your front door and you can look at the wildlife around you and you know what you're looking at. You understand what it is, why it's there, why you find it here but not over there. And how does your local wildlife relate to national wildlife and international wildlife? And then that will hopefully inspire a fascination for the web of life that we live within at the moment but most of us kind of float over the top we don't get down there mean and dirty and get it under your fingernails and smell it and feel it and just love it this natural history GCSE will be I hope a catalyst for a pipeline of naturalists into the workforce in the future and given that the UK loves its nature programs and Gerald Durrell was English who wrote My Family and Other Animals Why do you think it is that we have so deeply lost our connection with nature and that there aren't more budding Gerald Durrells getting obsessed with beetles in their back garden? It's a fascinating question, isn't it? Because I think we are probably one of the best study countries in the world. I mean, we've been writing about and obsessed with nature from sort of Gilbert White and and right back in time, right up to day, with all the wonderful naturalists that are around. But they form a very, very small minority of the population. And I think life has become much more urban, much more indoors, much more inward-looking. The increase in the incidence of the use of the words my, mine, I, has increased dramatically in literature since about the 1950s. So we become much more human-centred. We obviously spend a lot more time on virtual things rather than real living things. We've become a bit more fearful of being outside. The media has highlighted lots of things that may have always happened, but they seem a lot more real somehow if you read about them every day. I think there's 101 reasons. And I've heard you say that you think localism is the future. I think it is. I I think we're going back to to being people of places, to feeling rooted in a landscape. And I was listening to your lovely podcast, um, is it the Soundscape one, where you interviewed a lot of different voices from around this area. And it was lovely to hear those people that have lived here all their lives. And they just sound like the landscape, you know. They, they played in it, they climbed trees in it, they set fire to it, they, they messed around in it, they annoyed people in it. It was their space. And I think we've lost a lot of that. One of your guys said, you know, I just can't imagine wanting to be anywhere else. 
And I think developing that sense of localism, that you know how special it is, the place that you live, wherever that is, and that can be in a city centre as well, is something to celebrate and something that nurtures you. So localism is the antidote to being a global citizen, to thinking that I can hop on a plane and go anywhere I want at any time I want. It's much more organic, it's much more gritty, it's much more earthy than that. And I feel that there's a movement towards that again. And rootedness, as in the roots that go into the ground, is what produces the nutrients that help you grow. I'm convinced that's the way we're going. And so finally, on the Natural History GCSE, when is it likely to be available to study in schools and elsewhere? So the the government at the time announced 2025, first teaching. The thing is, they have to agree the criteria, the overarching principles that this GCSE has and which all the exam boards have to fit into. And that's been delayed and delayed and it's still sitting there being considered. And so my guess is 2026 now. And now on to curlews. In your book curlew moon you say you don't so much love curlews as cherish them again when i was listening to one of your podcasts somebody was talking about they remembered curlew breeding here and they used to walk past and say good morning mr or mrs curlew sitting on the nest and he cherished them too and he said that sound is just so beautiful it's one of those calls which the birds because of their special voice box can produce major and minor keys all interwoven together. The the air rents open and this this, this sound of happiness and joy and passion and farsightedness, always it stops people in their tracks. But it's gone from Ashdown Forest. You do, though, have a project not far away in Sussex on the Peppering Estate, which is what's called head-starting, which is kind of like farming curlews. They've brought eggs down from the north, they're raising them and releasing them out, hoping they'll recolonise this area. There's no reason why they shouldn't be here. They, They should be here, probably to do with people pressure, probably to do with subtle changes to the landscape that we might not know, but the birds recognise. It might be to do with an increase in predators. There's an awful lot of predators in in Britain now. It could be dog walking. It could be any number of reasons. They are on this nosedive to extinction. That's why they're red-listed, and that's why they need us to start thinking about what they need to come back. This is their land as well as ours. You know, they have a right to be here, and we should welcome them into our lives, even if that means we have to do things differently. And and just in case we need to explain, there was a bit of a rain downpour during your answer, but we're hardy folk and we just went on with it. We don't mind. (laughs) So, like nightingales, which we covered in our last episode, curlews have inspired much creativity, poetry, song. And I see that you've got David Gray, the musician, on board on your curlew campaign. Yes, that was so amazing to have someone like David pop up uh, totally unexpectedly and say how can I help because he loves curlews as well he loves all the natural world but he has a very soft spot for curlews too so he and I do quite a lot of work together and he wrote a lovely curlew song which appears on an album called Simmer Dim 
and Simadim is a collection of musicians from right around the world who've written songs about curlews. I mean, it is amazing how they inspire people. It's as though they sort of wheedle themselves into our souls and that comes out in this outpouring of creativity. As well as Curlew Moon, you've written a book about predators, Beak, Tooth and Claw, and in it you explain the double standards that us humans have about predators, what is a predator, and a lot of it is about empathy. And a definition that you have in the book is predators are animals who eat, animals we care about. It is. I mean, biologically, a predator is anything that eats anything else, which is pretty much everything. Uh, we're predators. But we have this very emotional approach to predation. We've narrowed that definition down and given it a slightly negative connotation. So, for example, a fox eating a rabbit in the Ashdown Forest, that's a predator. But uh, a woodpecker drumming in the spring on the bark of a tree, we go, oh, that's that wonderful, it's the sound of spring. But that woodpecker could easily just drum into a nest box and eat the nestlings inside there too. But we don't think of woodpeckers as predators, or most people don't. So it's a very confusing term for a lot of people because predators eat meat and most things eat meat. And our largest land predator is now the badger. Yes, Badgers do eat a lot of things. They are very good at finding worms. They eat loads of worms, lots of beetles and lots of bird's eggs. So if we're to attempt to bring back predators and reverse the nature depletion that we have here in the UK, which predators do you recommend? Oh, gosh, well, (laughs) that's a million-dollar question. The ones that we're most likely to see in the short term are the wildcat, and there's quite a lot of excitement about releasing wildcats fairly soon into specific parts of the country. Would not that be fantastic to have a wildcat in Ashdown Forest? Wouldn't your senses go just ping when you walk through here thinking somewhere maybe curled up in a lair is a wildcat in this forest? I would love that. I would also love to see lynx. But I think we're not predator-ready in the UK for bigger predators. Lynx could be in Ashdown Forest and you would never, ever see one. They are so secretive and they only really come out at night and they specialise on deer. So they control a lot of the deer problem that you have here. But I think people just think big cat, very scary, no thanks. I've read that in surveys, people are very pro-lynx if they live far away from it. So people in the south of England are happy about lynx being introduced in Scotland. (laughs) And wolves. (laughs) Well, funnily enough, in this episode of the podcast, we're also interviewing Cats Protection and which has its headquarters on the Ashdown Forest. There are now a million feral cats in Britain. Do we know what they're up to? 
We don't really. I mean, camera traps do show feral cats coming and scaring sitting birds and eating nestlings. I know a lot of gamekeepers tell me they often see them at night in their night scopes and so on. So they're out there. You think they're hunting a lot. They must be hunting to survive. So, But the, the impact, I can only guess at. And in Beak, Tooth and Claw, you go into our misconception of the danger of predators. You say that, for instance... This century in the US, there's only been one human death caused by a wolf, whereas there's every year in the US been over 20 deaths caused by cows and over 30 deaths caused by dogs. And drinks machines falling on people, (laughs) apparently even more. And toothpicks. (laughs) And toothpicks. (laughs) No, of course, but it, it goes back to who we are and how we evolved. We have evolved this sense of danger And so I still think, deep inside of us, we are attuned to certain shapes and movements and something like a big cat is just scary to us. No matter how many times I say to you, don't worry, let your little child play in the wood, ignore the lynx, not many people would believe you. They'd go on the side of caution. And I think that's a real problem for the reintroduction of predators because there could be a lynx in Ashdown Forest now. One could be looking at us from the undergrowth somewhere and we would never know and it would never, ever come anywhere near us. Same for wildcats. And so we have to create a a real desire in people to want these enchanting creatures back in our world again. And also in Beak, Tooth and Claw, you talk about a time of forgetting, a time of remembering and a time of abundance. Where do you think we're at? Those beautifully poetic phrases were from the great late biologist E.O. Wilson from Harvard. And he said that we are living in the age of forgetting. We are forgetting what it's like to live surrounded by song and colour and sight and sound and vibrancy. And we have to remember that. We have to recall all that time of abundance in the past. Let us enter the age of remembering. Read about it, talk to people about it, talk to the older generation. So we want to go forward into the age of abundance. And so we don't want to go in what he also calls the age of loneliness. We don't want to go down that path where there's nothing but cockroaches and pigeons. We want to go forward into a rich, life-filled world. And one less drowned out (laughs) by aircraft overhead. Well, hot on the heels of the aircraft, maybe, as we have these wildlife interludes, you could tell us some of your favourite sounds of nature that we might be able to bring up after this interview. One of the sounds I love most of all is the sound of wind in trees. And I I keep telling my husband, who always finds it a bit weird, I say, when I'm on my last legs, would you play me the sound of wind in trees? Because that's what I'd like to see me out. And also, we've had a bit of it today, the sound of rain. Isn't that a fantastic sound? I used to know, or I do know, a former prisoner. Spent a lot of his life in prison. And he said the thing that kept him going was when it was stormy and he could hear rain. And he said he stood on his bed and opened his window and he said he had a very small window. And he'd lean up just so he could get a few raindrops on his face. Those simple things, wind and trees, rain on our face, are just the things that make us human. So, yes, we can listen to the sound of nightingales and curlews and feel all poetic about it, but most of the time we'll have rain on our face and listen to the wind. And those are the things that I want to find joy in every single day. I want to go back to that world where people stop in their tracks and think, God, I just love this place.
That was the sound of rain on foliage, preceded by wind in the trees. And now Tom and I are out on our dusk walk and we're joined by Kari Dunbar from the Ashdown Forest Centre, who appeared in episode two talking about dogs. And now she's here to join Tom to talk about bats. Tom, could you paint the scene of where we are? Yeah, well, we chose a new spot to record for our dusk walk and set off from Chelwood Gate on the edge of the Ashdown Forest and we headed down through some woodland and have found ourselves at Braybury Ponds. And both Kari and I felt that this would be good habitat to listen out for our bats this evening. There are lots of flies and midges and mosquitoes, the kind of things that bats like to eat. But also I noticed on the way down there's quite a few trees that have got tears in them or woodpecker holes, the kind of places where bats might like to roost. And both Tom and Kari have brought their bat detectors out tonight. But before we get on to bats, Kari, can I just ask you about cats? Because in this episode we've talked about the fact that no development is allowed within 400 metres of the forest because of potential predation by pet cats. And yet Mary Colwell was talking about how exciting it would be to have wildcats or even lynx on the forest. Oh, there's a tawny owl going off. Why are we not so worried about the predation of wildcat and lynx? So the impact on the wildlife would be totally different. Pet cats often eat small birds. They'll climb up into nests, take nestlings, catch tiny things, very nimble, very quick. Wildcats are a bit bigger, so they would mostly eat rodents. And lynx are much bigger, much stockier. They're going to go after the deer and the fox on the forest. And cats also go for bats. Yeah, so pet cats are the top predator of bats in the UK. And that is because they often find the bat roost sites and will go back night after night, wait until they all come out and just swat them out of the air as they're emerging for the evening. And they're just playing with them, they're not going to eat them yeah no they don't eat them a lot of the casualties that come into the bat hospitals are because cats have got a bat and torn its wing or damaged it in some way bats are really fragile Hmm. yeah so let's hear about bats i think tom and you are going to get your bat detectors out yeah oh there's a bat so i think that's a soprano pipistrelle is. is that what you get? Yay! And the reason I know that is because it's clearest at 50 kilohertz on my bat detector. So that's why I know it's a soprano pipistrelle rather than a common pipistrelle, which would be at 45. So I've just set it at 45. we're hearing are the bats echolocating calls and it's hunting so the bat puts out a little pip it bounces off whatever there is whether it be a tree in its way or a gnat that it's trying to chase it bounces off the thing and back to them and from that they can work out how far away the thing is how big it is how fast it's moving So Kari, what are bats up to at this time of year, the autumn? So this is peak mating time now for the bats. They're all flying around. The males will be doing song flights often 
And if they are successful in attracting a mate, the female then does something amazing. She will store the sperm while she hibernates over the winter, and then in the spring when she wakes up, that's when the egg will be fertilised and she'll become pregnant. Gosh. And do we get brown long-eared bats on the Ashdown Forest? Yes, they've been recorded. Their echolocation call is really, really quiet, so I'm unlikely to pick them up on my bat detector, but Tom might get them on his. Because I've read that their hearing is so sensitive that they can hear a ladybird walking on a leaf. Yeah, they're amazing. They've also got very long ears, hence their name, (laughs) which they tuck under their armpits when they roost, which I think is really cute. And why do bats roost upside down? They don't all roost upside down. Some sort of push themselves into little gaps. But the ones who do roost upside down, their feet are made differently to our hands. So if you think our hands, when they're resting, are open, bats feet when they're resting are closed so when they're hanging upside down it's effortless i see mm-hmm. <laughs> and in the uk their diet is solely insect based yeah that's right and think of how many insects one of those bats needs to eat so apparently a common pipistrelle can eat up to three thousand little midges or tiny flies a night so while kari and i have been talking tom has been solidly on his full spectrum bat detector and what have you picked up Well, nearly 50% of the bats that have been recorded on the Ashdown Forest uh, in terms of species. We started off with soprano pipistrelle and common pipistrelle feeding close to where we're standing. And then higher overhead, the detector tells me that we had noctual and even more excitingly, a Lysler's bat. But for the Lysler's bat, I need to just run that call that I recorded through another bit of software just to make really sure that it is indeed that bat, because that would be quite a good record. So do you reckon we've had our fill of bats tonight? Well, it certainly seems that after that initial flurry of activity, as bats left their roost just after sunset, the amount of activity that we're picking up on the detectors has dropped off. So I think that's about it for tonight. OK, well, let's say thank you to Kari. Thank you, Kari. Thank you very much for having me. (laughs) And Tom, what have you got planned in our next episode's Dusk Recording? We have got the fallow deer rut and that promises lots of exciting sounds and also the challenge for us to to describe some rather funky smells as well. But that's for the next one. Uh, And in the meantime, I'd really like to take this opportunity to extend a massive thanks from Eka and I to a local wildlife enthusiast who stepped in to fund this and the upcoming episode. It means a lot to us to be able to focus on the content and not worry about the funding. And if you happen to find yourself in a position to jump in and support us with some funding, no matter how big or small, then please do get in touch via our email. It's ashdownpodcast at gmail.com. And as always, please support us by following us and leaving a review. And if you know people who might enjoy this podcast, please do forward them a link to it. So that's all for now. Good night. It is. Good night. (laughs) Good night.